You can go ahead and uh, turn to Second Timothy chapter four. Uh, we're kind of we're, we're circling the bases in uh, in Second Timothy and rounding towards home. Uh, we'll we'll look at Second Timothy chapter four verses one through eight today, and then next week we will finish up Second Timothy. Um, but as we've been walking through Second Timothy, uh, what we've seen is. While Paul is anticipating to see Timothy in person again, he is also very clearly uh, issuing a charge to Timothy in light of the fact, and we'll look at it today, that, that Paul is aware that the end of his life is rapidly approaching. This is, as we've talked about in the past, this is Paul's last letter that he writes in the New Testament. Uh, today we're going to see him even say, like, the, the time of my departure is drawing close. And so while he, he's anticipating to see Timothy, he's going to urge Timothy next week when we look at the tail end of it. Uh, he's going to urge Timothy to come see him in Rome. But Paul is in prison, recognizing that he is close to death. And he is issuing a charge to Timothy on what it means to finish well, or how to minister well, how to, how to emulate and follow Paul's example as Timothy himself follows the Lord. Um, and what we're going to look at uh, today is, is kind of, a, a, again, tagging off of what Paul has already written, what we've already seen is Paul has summarized his life in Christ. If we were to say it from beginning to end, Paul has not shied away from the fact that his life in Christ has been marked by suffering, while at the same time being marked by God's overwhelming faithfulness to him. Right, So Paul is inviting Timothy to join in suffering. Last week we looked at from the very beginning of Paul's missionary journey, suffering was normal for Paul. Everywhere that he went, he was uh, in the first first missionary journey. The first three stops, there were three out of the first four stops. He was driven out. They tried to stone him. They did stone him. Uh, and, and now he's urging Timothy, you know what happened to me. Join me in this. And at the same time, the suffering is real for Paul. God's faithfulness in Christ is equally or even more important to him, more real than the suffering he has endured. And so today in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, uh, we're going to see, again, we're coming back to this idea of why in the world would anyone sign up for a life of increased difficulty for following Jesus? And, and what does it look like to live in light of eternity. If, if, if this life is not all there is, then what is Paul going to encourage Timothy? And by extension, what is God by his spirit encouraging every believer in Jesus to do with their life on this side of eternity? So with that in mind, we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. And I encourage you this morning, we're going to jump around just a little bit more than I normally like to, but we're going to pull in a few other passages of Scripture that will help us frame this well as we move forward. So keep a finger in 2 Timothy 4. I'll let you know where we're headed, or you can follow along on the screen if you'd prefer. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now as we look at this, right off the bat, Paul is again urging or charging, commissioning, giving a command to Timothy. But notice he says he's being charged in the presence of God the Father and of Christ Jesus on a three-part basis. The first one is, is that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. In other words, he's going to judge all things, all people. So he's going to judge the living and the dead. He is going to appear and on behalf of his kingdom. Now, if we put all three of these together, what is interesting is that most of the time, when we think about encouraging somebody in their faith, we usually look backwards, right? I charge you in light of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Right? In light of his coming and taking flesh and dwelling among us, on behalf of the fact that he took our sin to the cross, bore it in himself, and, and exchanged our sin for his righteousness, because of that, then you should do this. But in this case, Paul is not referring backwards, but he's saying, in light of what is to come in light of what is still true of what Jesus will do. And so stick a finger in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, because we just want to round this out a little bit and see what does, and this is not exhaustive of what the rest of Scripture says about what is to come and what Jesus will do when he returns, but it is enough to round out what is Paul saying in these th- this three-part basis, his judgment, his appearance, and his kingdom. So the first place that I have you look is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. And it's on screen for you if you don't, want to, if you don't feel like playing Bible drill. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. In the middle of uh, the letter of Hebrews, or towards the tail end of the letter of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes this truth that, that you've probably heard it, you maybe have said it before, uh, but just to, to help us see it again. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the author of Hebrews saying a similar thing to what Paul just said in Second Timothy. When Jesus returns, he will come, not in order to uh, once again die for sin, but to bring all things to their completion. Now, it might be, there's really, I would say, if, if we're honestly looking at the return of Jesus and the fact that he will judge all things and all people, there's probably two main responses that we would have. One might be an O-Cred moment. And we'll see why this might be an O-Cred. We'll fill this out a little bit more in a moment. But it might be an O-Cred moment 
Because if he is the right and he's holy judge and he sees and knows all things and he sees all things inside of us, knows everything that we've thought, knows everything that we have done, and it is all laid bare before him, there's a little bit of a terrifying thought to that, isn't there? Because even with any other person in authority in our lives, whether it's been parents, police, whatever else, there is an element to which you can keep some of what you think, and some of what you feel hidden. You can kind of withhold evidence that hasn't been found yet. But when it comes to an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, there is nothing hidden from his view. And so there might be a moment where we go, if God truly sees me for who I am, and his standard of receiving me into his presence is perfection, there's a sobering moment of, oh no, who could possibly come into his presence in that place? So that would be one response. We go, a sobering reality of, oh no, he is a good and righteous judge, and I am not a good and righteous person. The second response, if, if we're saying we do believe that he will return, is a, is a hope-filled, confident thought only because of what he has already done. So, so for, for some, you might say, I, I used to be terrified of what he would see in me, and yet now, because of faith through what he has done through Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross for me, giving me life instead of death, now I can look forward with hope-filled anticipation of his coming, of his return. Like, up on my own, I would be in dire straits. But because of what he has done, he sees righteousness in me instead of all of my faults and all of my failures. But make no doubt of this. He says, it is appointed once. Every single one of us in this room, unless Jesus comes back ahead of time, every single one of us in this room will die. But whether we die or whether he returns, the second part is True no matter what. Each of us will stand before him and he will judge us righteously, perfectly, according to all that he knows and all of his power. If that's not kind of like, whew, okay. Getting into a little bit more a little bit more weighty material this morning, aren't we? Matthew chapter sixteen. Again, this idea of Jesus judging all things, all things being brought into his gaze. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, sorry, I don't know why I'm cutting in and out. Um, Matthew chapter 16, 24 through 27, Jesus is, is, it's a curious thing that Jesus will say, because on the front side, he is calling people to follow him. He tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And notice this. So, so right there he's laid it out. He says, anybody who wants to, to save their life will, must lay it down and follow me. Taking up their cross, the instrument of death. Follow me. But what he says is, what would it gain you if in, in this side of heaven, right? you imagine your birth date, end date, 
dash, right? In this moment, in the dash of your life, where life is being lived, if you were to store up and gain everything, Jesus says, what would it give you if on the other side of the dash, it's all gone? He says, rather, it would be better to not have anything in the dash, but have everything for eternity. And then he says this curious thing in verse 27. He says, for the Son of Man, so I am going to come with his angels. So he's talking about himself in the third person. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then, again, terrifying comment, potentially. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Did you ever, I'm probably the only one that ever did this, if you were at home, parents were out doing whatever, and you messed something up, and you knew what time approximately they were coming home. I'm the only one that's ever done this, right? Do you remember that nice feeling of dread? Sorry, can you imagine that nice feeling of dread? Because you never did this. When you realize that the thing that you screwed up was not fixable in time, like it, it's okay. Like if you make a mess, you're like, it's okay. I got time, and you get clean it up, and they come home. It's like, hey, everything's clean. But what about when you broke something and it wasn't fixable, hypothetically? How much excitement was there in the waiting? There wasn't excitement, was there? There was just the confident, like, oh no. There will be an accounting for this. And we can laugh about that in hindsight because what happened to us when we were children or or maybe when we were adults, uh, you know, house sitting for parents, like, oh no, I killed your dog. Anyway, uh, I didn't do that. I'm just kidding. I never, never killed one of the animals while the parents were gone. But we can laugh about those things because usually what happened is we, we were grounded. And it and and that and it was temporary and it was finite and like and it was really uncomfortable for a week, two weeks, six months. I don't know, depending on who your parents were, right? Um, maybe they still bring it up and like oh, I thought we were over that. We can laugh about it because it was temporary and it was usually disciplined for our good. But what if, not if, but when we come into Jesus in his right judgment, repaying each person according to what he's done. If we are holding our lives in our own hands, in our own ability, owning all of our own junk, all of the brokenness, all of the mess that we have helped contribute to making in our lives, and we have a sure promise that we will stand before him to give an account for it, there ought to be a far greater dread of that day than there ever was of a broken item, a broken lamp in the house waiting for parents to get home. Because if we are honest with ourselves and we know that God is, if we're honest and say he is holy and righteous and good, and we are not, then the right judgment that he is bringing is a separation from him for eternity. And so there might be, again, if, if our initial response is, oh no, I'm gonna, I promise we're going to get to some good news here in a moment. 
Revelation chapter 20, though, again, just one more spot. Just seeing this, I think it helps seeing it not just in one spot, but in multiple places. Revelation chapter 20, towards the end of the book. This look forward to when Jesus reigns for all of eternity. And John, in, in the revelation that he was given in order to share with the church, in order for us to know the direction and the arc of all of history and all of the ways that Jesus will make it right, points us to this moment where we stand before a holy God. He says, And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You imagine, books spread out, the records of our entire lives laid bare, standing before him. And, and, and what's interesting, though, is that it's not necessarily what's in the books that matters. There's the one book, the book of life, where it says, if anybody's name's not in that book. Because here's the deal. None of us are going to stand before God with a perfect record on our own. If you were to stand before the Lord, and, and you might have had great grades, you might have been a really respectful child and saved those, those teenage years where nobody was respectful. Uh, you might have, have done all that you could do at your job to, to, to do the right thing. You might have never missed a bill payment. You might have done all of the things that would, would accord you rightness on this side of heaven. And yet, it's not just the outward things that are recorded in the books. Our inner feelings towards other people are written in the books. Our thoughts and our motivations are written in the books. Every way we're thought, every way we're deed, along with all the right ones and all the good ones. And yet, on our own, again, none of us stand if we stand on our own. And what Paul is telling Timothy He says, in light of that day, when Jesus appears, when his kingdom is completely in reign, when he is judging the the living and the dead, here comes the charge. But before I move there, I think it would be important for us to go, if if I left you in a spot saying, wait, you said one of the responses to be sitting there with dread and not having any answer for yourself. So what's the way out of that? That would probably be important for us to talk about that before we move on and go, hey, just feel really miserable there and hopefully you'll figure it out. Because this is the whole arc of what God has done. This is the whole reason why he has given us his word. It's so that we might know that he is a holy God who to whom we will all give an account. And yet... 
Because of his great love for us, the God who made us to know him and to walk with him in a way that we ought to honor him in all that we do, and yet we turned away from him and ran after our own agenda, our own ambitions, our own everything, God in his great love for us sent his perfect son to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he embraced the eternal weight of that punishment of sin that you and I deserve to endure. Which is why he went to the cross. He died on the cross not just to give an example of how much God loves us, but he went to the cross functionally to remove the sin, the death, the shame, the guilt from everyone who puts their hope in his name. And the great scandal of this is the one who is perfect takes on all of the imperfection so that those who are imperfect can put on his perfection in faith. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but simply because he has offered it as a gift of grace. And it's entered into, it's received by faith, where we turn away from our own agenda and we take on the life that he has for us. And it's within this, so, so if you have never made that conscious turn from sin and turn towards following Jesus in faith, I would urge you, do that because there is coming a day where we will stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. And it will not matter any of the other things that you bring to the table. There will not be any time to explain our circumstances of why we did what we did before a holy God. There will not be any, any reason to say, if you only understood what I was going through. He understood, which is why he sent his son to die for you. He has made provision already. Not so that that day we could plead mercy, so that this day we can embrace it before that day. So get it right now. Don't wait for that day where you go, well, God will be merciful and gracious. He has been gracious and merciful by sending his son. Receive him. And follow him. And it's within this that Paul says, so that's the looking backwards, but then looking forwards. He says, in light of this, Timothy is one who has put his faith in Jesus. How is he supposed to? How am I supposed to? How are you supposed to live your life in light of this? If our faith is in Jesus, then what does it look like? How does it change because of this? And now I'm going to skip Colossians 1, 15 through 17. But Colossians 1, 15 through 17 places Jesus as the supreme Lord of all creation, through whom, for whom, and by whom all things have been made and hold together. So if, if he is not only the one who judges, but he is also the one who sits in authority for all of eternity, how should we live? Is the grand question, and this is where Paul rounds this out towards Timothy as we continue to walk. In verse 2, he says, preach the word. In light of his coming, in light of his appearance, in light of his judgment, in light of his kingdom that is initiated but will be completed, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, he's encouraging Timothy to invest his life in the good news of who Jesus is. 
In light of the fact that there is coming a day when all will stand before him, how do you live your life? You live your life in light of what he has done. And you proclaim it. We could, we could like go into the fancy explanations of what it means to be ready in season and out of season, but really what that means is be ready all of the time. There's no evangelism punch clock. Right? Like there's no time card where we go, I'm on the clock. If there's somebody that wants to talk about Jesus, now we're on. Okay, it's five o'clock, off the clock. Okay, oh, you want to talk about Jesus? Come back tomorrow. Right? Like there's no, compartmental, no compartmentalizing our lives before him. It's our lives are lived in light of what he has done, in light of who he is and, and what is coming on that day. And so we proclaim the word. In First Peter chapter 3, Peter gives a, a, a similar encouragement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. I hope if I was on the right chapter, it's like, that doesn't make sense. But he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which again, it's interesting, right? Another guy writing in the New Testament talking about suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And notice this next part, right? So first of all, we're keeping Jesus honored first and foremost in our lives as holy. And then always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And also interesting that he gives a qualifier the same way that, Timothy, or that Paul does. To do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, if we put these two together, if we were just to read First Peter in a vacuum, we might say, wow, I'm only supposed to be ready so that when somebody asks me, I can tell them. Right? But then you take Paul's encouragement to Timothy, and he says, proclaim, be ready all the time. So no matter whether somebody's asking or whether you're sharing, all the time ready to share the good news of who Jesus is. And what's interesting in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is he says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, right? Which is if you went just up to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, so up like three verses. Remember what it said, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what we could say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is all of Scripture is, in some ways, is useful to the person who reads it, right? It's all useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, uh, and for training in righteousness. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, we get that it's also useful in all of the ways that we share the word to, repro- uh, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, to correct and to encourage, to comfort. The Word of God, in other words, if we put these two things together, we sandwich them together, what we find again is the Word of God is always sufficient for everything that God calls us to do. In every situation, God's Word is sufficient. It's capable. It's useful. It's helpful. And yet, there's sometimes that lie in the back of our heads, right? Well, this person doesn't even believe in God's Word. It's God's Word. Like, it's not going to do anything. Well, this person doesn't even, doesn't even like Scripture. Like, they don't, they don't want to hear Scripture. You might remember 
And you, you can turn if you want. In Isaiah chapter 55. Again, this is a, another a verse where we talk about another passage that we talk about the power of God's word when it goes out. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11. The Lord speaks to the people of Israel through Isaiah, and he says, as the, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So a question that we might ask ourselves is, how much confidence do I have in God's word to do God's purposes? And just a a quick encouragement on this. That the demeanor of the person with the word is again is like it's it's approached in Second Timothy chapter four. It's approached in First Peter chapter three with gentleness and respect, with patience and teaching. And actually, Paul says with complete patience. The word is always useful, and yet it's interesting that we're cautioned on the demeanor with which we share it. And put it this way, the word isn't a tool for your glory and my glory. It's not, it's not the basis on which we can puff ourselves up and say, see, well, look what I did. I shared a Bible verse with you. It's a tool for his glory in light of his coming, in light of his rule, in light of his reign. His word will support his purposes. So how, in what way am I handling the word? But I would again encourage you on this. Patience and teaching, gentleness and respect does not mean capitulating on conviction. Peter says, be, be ready all the time to give a defense for what you believe, but do it with gentleness and respect. Here, Paul says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Two of those seem kind of like more negative. Correct and rebuke are kind of corrective words. But doing it with patience and teaching. There's a temptation for us as, as followers of Jesus to apologize for what God's word says because it offends somebody. Now, if our demeanor is the thing that's being offensive, two easy words. Stop it. Right? But if it's the word that's offending, let the word be the offending thing. Let, don't let your life and don't let your demeanor be the thing that offends, but let, by all means, if, the, if somebody's going to be offended, let them offended by the truth of what God's word says. You don't need to apologize for what it says. Which I, it sounds really easy in a vacuum until somebody says, do you really believe that it says this? Do you really believe that this is what it says about these types of behaviors? Right? That's when you go, well, you know, like in the context of when Paul was writing and then... You see it all over the place. We, we begin to say, well, maybe in the first century things were different, and so that it means this, but now it means it could mean something different. You're, maybe you're right. Stand with conviction on the word, with patience, with gentleness, with respect, but you don't have to back off of the word in order to share it. But your demeanor does matter. Holding those two things in balance. 
And within that, we, we come back to this idea. We saw it in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But he says, because or for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The, the time is coming when right or sound teaching will be insufferable to some. I can't handle that. That's too much. You really believe the word says that? I'll go somewhere else where they don't say that. And that idea of itching ears is never satisfied ears seeking relief or seeking to hear only what makes it feel better, but yet they're still itching. Ever had a mosquito bite that just like you itch it and it feels better and then you stop itching it and it doesn't feel better? Only me, right? <laughs> I just imagine that like that's the, the, the thing of I, I need to hear it, I need to hear it. I need to hear it, need to hear it, and never satisfied. And again, this is the danger of, of what we might call like the, the seeker-sensitive movement or the, 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 the way that we would try to maneuver the word to be um, more palatable, more, more easily uh, taken by somebody. If it's taken too far, what we're doing is make, working to make the word agree with the audience. How can I share it with you in a way that doesn't offend you? But the problem is, is that you and I and every other person is to be transformed and conformed into the image of God through his word and not the other way around. There's a strong temptation in order to make the word fit what somebody wants to hear so that they will go like, look, they're coming because they love the word. No, they're, they're, look, they're coming because you're telling them what they want to hear and using the word to say it. And notice what he says. He says, uh, earlier, he had told Timothy, but as for you, right, flee youthful passions. And yet here he says that they're accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So are we, are we fleeing our passions or are we gathering people who tell us what we want to hear in order to feel good about it? Or are we contributing to those who are telling people what they want to hear? And rather than fleeing from sin, they're accumulating people who increase their sin because they're agreeing with them. Are we turning and pursuing, or are we turning and wandering? Or are we encouraging turning and pursuing Jesus, or turning and wandering into secondary things? And then we, we see it again. But as for you, verse 5, always be sober-minded, or the other way you could say that is always be self-controlled. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think we, we, we feel okay about self-control and endure suffering as far as knowing what they mean, maybe not necessarily exercising them. But what's the work of an evangelist? You know, that's Billy Graham. There's one evangelist, right? He's really good. Well, he was. Sorry, that's... Or... Are those who proclaim the good news supposed to be more than just one or two individuals? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get this picture of what it means to be an evangelist or an ambassador, somebody who heralds or proclaims who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I have it starting in verse 18 on screen, but in verse 17... 
He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If we stop there really quickly. Jesus made us right with himself and then entrusted to us the ministry of telling other people how they can be right with Jesus too. And he says, that is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Can you imagine how big of a task that is? That those who have received the good news of who Jesus is, who have received the knowledge of what it means to be going from death to life, are now entrusted with the message of telling people how they can go from death to life. And he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Quick stop. How daunting does that seem? God is making his appeal towards sinful humanity through people like you and me. And it's plan A. It's not plan Z like nothing else panned out. This is his design. It's his good plan for you and for me. So he says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is the message. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, do the work of an ambassador. Do the work of of an evangelist. Preach the word. Tell people about Jesus. And he says, fulfill your ministry. It could also be fulfill your service. What's the term of service? How long is it? This side of that day is your term of service. Again, you're not on a time clock. You're not counting down to retirement unless retirement is being with Jesus in glory. And then Paul turns to his own example in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, for I, he's always been for you, I charge you, uh, therefore you. But now he says, because I, or for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It's an interesting word picture that Paul chooses to use as a, a picture of an offering being poured out on the altar to picture his life. Saying, I am being poured out in service. And my life is almost over. And then he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What an incredible thing to be able to say, right? In in the midst of all of the suffering he has endured, in light of being in prison, in light of finishing the race, he can say, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. If you uh, remember back in in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, starting in verse 3, it told uh, Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus telling him that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've been a good soldier. I've finished it. He says, I've finished the race. And in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He says, I've finished the race. I've run it. And he compares it also. He says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
Think over what I say. And then he says, I've kept the faith, but then notice this in verse 8, thinking of that good farmer who takes a share in the crops. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So I've been the good farmer. I'm looking forward to my share and my inheritance in what? In the work that I've done. Having his inheritance in the Lord. And we circle back to this idea, the Lord, the righteous judge. Paul knows full well he will look Jesus face to face and give an account for his life. And yet he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I know what is laid up for me. In light of all the suffering that Paul has endured, he says, I know what's laid up for me. In other words, Paul is saying it's worth it. Encouraging Timothy, it's worth it. But then he also makes this incredible promise by the power of God's Spirit, inspired word, not only to me, but to everyone who looks forward to his appearing. Paul is anticipating his reward in Christ, even as all of his earthly freedom in life is stripped away. And all who hope in Christ are looking forward to the same. So I just have three quick questions for you as we close. Three questions I would invite you to take home with you, think through, ponder as you go out today. First one is just very simply, how is my life being lived? Is it being lived in such a way as to try to accumulate all that I can get inside of my dash? Or is it looking forward to that day when I stand before the God of my salvation? Or it might just be before you stand before the Lord. He might not be the God of your salvation yet. Have you put your faith in him? Which leads to the second question. Have that picture of Paul's life being poured out as a drink offering in worship. Each of us is spending our life on something. Whose altar is your life being poured out on? You have that picture, right? It being poured out until it's all the way gone. Whose altar? Is it your altar? An altar of praise to him. And then maybe the most important starting point is the last question. Does the the coming appearance of Jesus give me confidence or fear and apprehension? If your honest assessment and answer to that question is, I'm honestly terrified that I will stand before him and give an account for my life. Again, there's only one solution, and that is, his righteousness instead of your own that comes through right faith in him. If you say, I'm confident and I'm I'm joyful and I'm, I'm expecting that, then how will you spend the rest of your days before that day making much of him? What does it look like? Today maybe is a day of recalibration in light of the day of eternity. There's still time to course correct. You go, oh, wow, I'm I'm out of sorts. Well, I'm too far down the road. You're not too far down the road. Today can be a day of decision of where my life will be poured out and why and how. And I would encourage you not to leave today without getting that sorted out.